This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who signed up at patreon.com slash bestofleft to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the fight for free and fair elections, in which voters choose their representatives rather than the politicians getting to select their voters, keeping themselves in power indefinitely, regardless of the will of the people. Before we get started, though, uh, here are just a couple of thoughts I want you to take with you. Uh, we on the left are dealing with a massive case of overwhelm right now. So as a quick example, I thought, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was a really easy question to answer if you were to ask me what's the number one topic to deal with. I would have said climate change. It's earth changing, species threatening it's the biggest thing out there. We need to deal with it. And so that's what I focused on first. But as you get into that, what you realize pretty quickly is that it's really hard to fight something like climate change head on and without a more holistic perspective that also includes things like money and politics. You can't really focus on climate change without dealing with money and politics. So then you focus on money and politics for a little while. And then you realize, you know, it's really hard to fight money in politics without realizing that the entire system of capitalism is what's at the heart of both of these problems. And then there are these other issues that you think are kind of tertiary, but, oh, it turns out they're all connected to racism, voter suppression, gerrymandering, and all of that. And so by the time you realize that all of these issues are connected, it starts to become more overwhelming because you're less sure of where you should put your focus. So the fact is, all of these issues actually support each other. Uh, I, I like to think of them as, uh, I don't know, the image that comes to my mind, it's like a traditional teepee, right, with all of the poles that all come together in the middle. So all the poles are connected together, and they're supporting one another, adding collective support, but also interdependent of one another. So taking out just one isn't going to bring the whole structure down. You have to pull out enough of the supports, but then eventually the whole thing comes crashing down. That's how I think of all the big issues we face. We've got a lot of big issues, but it makes no sense to only solve one of them. We have to solve several pretty much simultaneously. And that's true, but then what we end up thinking is not we have to solve all these issues, but we think that I have to help solve all these issues, but that's not how it works. It can't work that way. No one can be an integral part of every movement. We need to get engaged and be okay with seeing ourselves as a relatively small piece or maybe a very small piece of a large multifaceted movement. When you are in a movement you have to remember, you don't get the documentary view that follows the hero on their path to victory. You get the perspective from the trenches, which can feel small and thankless or even useless, but you need to be able to be aware of your surroundings, understand your place in the movement, and understand what value you bring to it. Because the alternative is is trying to do everything and feeling overwhelmed immediately, or more likely, 
you feel pulled in a hundred different directions trying to solve every problem and end up doing almost nothing out of indecision. So if you can't do everything, then how do you decide what you should do? Well, I have some advice. A wise person once described it to me this way. Put yourself where the world's deepest need, and of course the world has lots of needs right now, so you got plenty of choices, where the world's greatest need meets your greatest gladness, which is sort of a hippie way of saying make sure that you're spending your time in a way that makes you happy, maybe even nourishes your soul. It, you know, it helps, uh, helps you stick with it. And then there's a third intersection at the point of highest leverage, meaning where you can do the most good. So for instance, I do this show because at least my opinion is that one of the world's needs is for the information I share to be heard by more people. So that's always been my goal. Plus, I enjoy doing this work. I mean, at least compared to other work. So I've been able to sustain it because I sort of enjoy it. But then uh, for me to be able to do this work at the highest point of leverage, I had to start including activism. That was an idea that came along later. I didn't always do activism segments. And I knew just sort of instinctually it wasn't as impactful as it could be. The show wasn't. So I tried to move closer to the highest point of leverage I could find. So your job is to figure out where you fit by finding that intersection for yourself. Where does the world's greatest need meet your greatest gladness at the highest point of leverage? So that's what I want you to think about today, instead of how overwhelming things are right now. I, I think we're having a lot of uh, overwhelm problem, a lot of politics fatigue, and I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to do what I can. Like it's my job to impart information, and uh, the information is what's overwhelming. So I'm saying what I'm saying today to try to counteract that phenomenon. We're going to hear about gerrymandering today, and it can feel like a daunting problem. Even more so because you were just piling it on top of all of the other daunting problems that we're trying to solve at the same time. And you may feel like you need to take on this problem. And if you don't, you're letting the movement down. And I'm here to say that is not the case. We do need for some people to make this issue their mission in life. And we're even going to hear about people like that on today's show. And maybe you can become one of those people. But it doesn't have to be everyone, and it doesn't have to be you. And taking a more broad perspective, I think it's important for everyone to have a high-level understanding on multiple issues. I, 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 think, I think all of you listening to the show are making the right choice. You should keep listening and get a good understanding for every topic we cover and more. You need to be able to see the connections between all of these issues. And it's important to support other issues when you can't show up to someone else's protest march, donate to someone else's cause. But the way you can be most effective is by finding your place and focusing on it. And you won't just be more effective, you will also feel less overwhelmed. So now that you are mentally prepared for this, and you'll find it informative rather than overwhelming, clips today come from Amicus, Democracy Now!, Another Way with Lawrence Lessig, the Takeaway, The Bradcast, and Counterspin. 
I think we can all agree that the courts have now joined the other branches uh, of government in suppressing the vote. And that sucks. And so that leads us to the term. And uh, can somebody just walk us through the gerrymandering cases? Maybe, Mark, you you tee us off and explain uh, what happened on Thursday and why it maybe matters more than people think. Right. So these cases were a challenge to partisan gerrymandering, which is when uh, lawmakers draw district lines uh, in order to dilute votes for the opposite party uh, to entrench their own party's power. Um, fairly easy to do these days with extremely sophisticated software uh, and techniques. If you look at a state like North Carolina, their maps are grotesquely mangled uh, because Republicans mastered the art of gerrymandering Democrats uh, out of power permanently. Uh, and for a very long time, voting rights advocates have argued that this is a constitutional violation that infringes on freedom of expression, that it violates equal protection. Uh, and the Supreme Court, with Justice Kennedy on the bench, kind of dangled the possibility that they were right in front of them for many years. But on Thursday, the five conservative justices said, actually, no, uh, partisan gerrymandering claims are political questions. They are beyond the ken of this court and uh, essentially, Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion shut the courthouse doors, or at least the federal courthouse doors, to partisan gerrymandering plaintiffs forevermore. And, and Pam, just to be clear, what Roberts says is this is just not justiciable. We've tried to find a standard. You've found all these standards. They're lovely, but not appropriate for the courts to get in the middle of this. Historically, this wasn't a constitutional question, and it would be unseemly in the extreme for judges to be picking winners and losers. So drops mic, fades into the bush. It's over. And I guess my question to you is, I, Elena Kagan says in her dissent, that that can't be right because you, you've just said in your majority opinion that state courts do this all the time and lower courts do this all the time. So I don't understand why this is the issue on which John Roberts says there can be no way for courts to do this fairly if courts are doing it and have been doing it with some degree of accuracy and success. Well, I, I think what he's really saying in part is we don't want to be in the middle of this. And so we're going to take all of the federal courts out of it. Um, state courts could theoretically still do it under the federal constitution because the important thing for folks to understand about this is the court is not saying that these gerrymanders are okay. It's simply saying we are not the people to say that they're, that they're, that they're unconstitutional. And, and this goes back as, you know, as far as the first time the Supreme Court really wrestled strongly with this issue, which is none of the justices say the there's not a constitutional problem here. Um, what they say is courts shouldn't be in the business of doing this. So it's theoretically open even to a state Supreme Court, I suppose, to decide this on federal constitutional grounds. And some state Supreme Courts, most notably recently, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, have decided these cases on um, state constitutional grounds. Um, one thing just to, to get out on the table is uh, you might call it the you ain't seen nothing yet problem, which is um, for the last 10 years, everybody has assumed uh, up until now that if they could just persuade Justice Kennedy that this particular gerrymander went too far, um, they might get they might get a standard out of the Supreme Court. And I think that had a kind of cautionary effect on most of the people who were gerrymandering, which is they didn't go as far as they could. 
because they were worried that if they went too far, that would bring Justice Kennedy down on them. And now they've basically been told there's no limit that the federal courts are going to are going to enforce. And that means that you're likely to see a lot of things like what you saw in North Carolina, which is people getting up on the floor of the legislature and saying, our goal here is to screw the other party. And the, you know, the guy who was the kind of floor manager in North Carolina on the Rucho case, which is the case that Mark was talking about, got up and said, why did we draw 11 Republican districts, I'm sorry, 10 Republican districts and three Democratic districts? Because we couldn't figure out how to draw 11 Republican districts. And so I think you're going to see coming out of the 2020 census, some really amazing redistricting or redistrict every two years just to increase your power. I mean, there's the, the thing that I think people don't realize is as bad as the gerrymanders we've seen have been, it's entirely possible we're going to see a whole nother thing after 2020. And Leah, can I ask, I think one of the things that I caught in Elena Kagan's dissent in the gerrymander cases was this deep frustration. I mean, at one level, just saying, you know, voting is kind of at the very beating heart of democracy, right? You know, our our elected officials work for us, not the vice versa, and we choose them and not vice versa. But beyond all the sort of very frustrated rhetoric, I think that there was this this valence there of just people are going to lose confidence. They're going to lose any belief that their vote can matter for for a lot of the reasons that Pam is saying, you know, uh, th- these illusions that we draw district, I'm sorry, that we draw districts, you know, it doesn't have to be perfectly proportional, even though Chief Justice Roberts says that's what we're looking for. But it certainly can't be catastrophically wrong. And am I right to say that one of the things that Justice Kagan is balking at here is this message that's sent to the voters? <laughs> oh, well, or as Pam says, you ain't saying nothing yet. I think that that's exactly right. She opened her opinion, I think her recitation of the facts and also closed with it with this question. Is this how American democracy is supposed to work? And she says, no one thinks that it should work this way because partisan gerrymandering threatens the very premise of the constitutional democracy, which is that elections are supposed to be responsive to the popular will. And with very strong language, she talked about how it debases and devalues and dishonors our democracy and how it's really odd for the majority to say that gerrymanders are political questions that can be fixed through elections when elections are undermined by that very gerrymandering. So yes, she really did sound the alarm that the court's approval of partisan gerrymandering and essentially giving the green light to legislatures to do the most extreme partisan gerrymandering possible that they can really will undermine faith in all of our branches of government because it will make those political branches much less responsive to popular will and democratic sentiment. And, and Pam, what's the test that Elena Kagan is proposing? It's the same. She's repurposing uh, the test she tried out last year. What is the test and, and is it justiciable? Is she creating a standard that that is workable? I mean, it, it, you know, Ultimately, political gerrymandering is a question of when have you gone too far? Um, And, you know, I think there are a variety of ways of getting to when have you gone too far, ranging from when somebody gets up and says the purpose of this plan is to screw the other party and make sure their votes don't count on down. So I don't think it's I don't think it's so much that there's one one kind of clear test. And I think this is where, you know, the majority gets its rhetorical power, at least, is 
the the argument that there's nothing as as clean as one person one vote, which you know Justice Stewart once described as sixth grade arithmetic, and there isn't a sixth grade arithmetic test. Um, but I think Justice Kagan is right that you you know there are ways to you know there are ways to 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 come up with um, judicially judicially manageable standards of saying you know there's just too much here because this is so asymmetric. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. They have 14 different languages to choose from, and their teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. And I'm pretty sure their users agree. The Babbel app has nearly 40,000 reviews, averaging 4.6 out of 5 just on the iOS app store alone. And Babbel's my choice because they're so good at teaching language lessons that I can put to use right away in a real-world scenario. And I think that's because Babbel's lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts, otherwise known as real people, not a translation machine. So it really makes a difference. Babbel's available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all your devices. All it takes is a few easy steps to get started. Go to babbel.com or download the app. Select the language of your choice and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Newly surfaced documents have revealed that a now-dead senior Republican strategist who specialized in gerrymandering was secretly behind the Trump administration's efforts to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The New York Times broke the story last week in a story that called Thomas Hoffler the Michelangelo of gerrymandering. When Hoffler died last August, he left behind a computer hard drive full of his notes and records. His estranged daughter found among the documents a 2015 study that said adding the citizenship question to the census would, quote, be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites and would clearly be a disadvantage to the Democrats, unquote. Census officials estimate six and a half million people will not respond to the census if the citizenship question is added. This undercount could affect everything from the redrawing of congressional maps to the allocation of federal funding. In a court filing Thursday, plaintiffs challenging the citizenship question accused two Trump administration officials of falsely testifying under oath about the Justice Department's motivations for altering the census. The Supreme Court is also set to rule within weeks on whether Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross had the authority to add the citizenship question to the census. For more, we're joined by Ari Berman, senior writer at Mother Jones, a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute, author of Give Us the Ballot, the Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. His new piece is headlined, Architect of GOP Gerrymandering Was Behind Trump's Census Citizenship Question. Ari Berman, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So lay out this expose. Good to see you again, Amy. So this is really startling smoking gun evidence in the census case that really undercuts 
why the Trump administration added this question. So the Trump administration added the citizenship question, and they claimed it was needed to better enforce the Voting Rights Act. Well, these new documents from Tom Hoffler show that it was not needed to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And in fact, the people that would be most harmed by the addition of the citizenship question, Latinos and other racial minorities, are the very groups the Voting Rights Act was designed to protect. And it clearly shows that this question was added to benefit the Republican Party, particularly white Republicans. Because Tom Hoffler says in this unpublished study that is now key evidence in this case, this would be clearly a disadvantage to Democrats and an advantage to Republicans. So there you have it. I mean, this is really black and white. You can't get any more explicit than this. We now know for certain this is why the question was added to the census. And talk about how we know this. Talk about Hoffler's estranged daughter. Well, it's a pretty wild story. So there's a separate case in North Carolina challenging the gerrymandering of state legislative districts. Tom Hoffler has been the go-to expert in the Republican Party for decades on redistricting. And he's drawn some of the most extreme gerrymandered maps in places like North Carolina. And so there's a case challenging this map in North Carolina. And after Hoffler passed away, his daughter found hard drives with all of his work, and she gave it over to the plaintiffs challenging these gerrymandering. Gave it to Common Cause. Gave it to Common Cause and other plaintiffs challenging the gerrymandering in North Carolina. Now some of this evidence has now become public. There is more here, too, by the way, Amy. We're going to learn more about the role that Tom Hoffler has played in gerrymandering efforts in other cases, but this pertains directly to the census case. So the New York Times calls him the Michelangelo Angelo of gerrymandering. Um, talk about his whole history and also how this could have legal bearing and even going to the issue of the Supreme Court, uh, making a decision about Wilbur Ross adding the sense, the, uh, the question, the citizenship question in the census. So Tom Hoffler is not a household name, but he's been an extremely influential person in the Republican Party for decades. He's basically been the Republican Party's go-to guy when it comes to redistricting. So he's traveled since the 1980s, uh, state after state after state, drawn maps to boost Republican representation. And a lot of these maps, particularly after the 2010 election, have been struck down in court. So really gerrymandered maps he drew in places like North Carolina and Ohio have been invalidated by the courts. In fact, the North Carolina congressional map that Hoffler drew was invalidated by the Supreme Court in an opinion written by Clarence Thomas, who found that it was an unconstitutional racial gerrymandering. So even Clarence Thomas thought that the maps that Hoffler was drawing were too extreme. And, and the fact that you had the architect of GOP gerrymandering drawing up the census citizenship question is so startling, Amy, because the census forms the basis for redistricting. So we have to have unfair, inaccurate census data to be able to draw fair districts. If we have skewed census data, that's going to lead to skewed districts. So even before they start the gerrymandering itself, they're essentially gerrymandering the census to give themselves an advantage. So in the 90s, Thomas Hoffler led the Republican effort to oppose using statistical sampling to gain a more accurate count of non-white populations that the Census Bureau tended to miss. At the time, Hoffler wrote, quote, a census that uses sampling and statistical adjustment will be the biggest victory for big government liberalism since the enactment of the Great Society. I want to go to Hoffler speaking in 2001 at the National Conference of State Legislatures. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book on death and dying. Her five steps, I believe, can be applied to redistricting. And you can pick the people to whom they apply and the order in which they apply to those people. And those steps are, first is denial. It couldn't happen to me. 
The next step is bargaining. Maybe I can make a deal. The next step is anger. None of us have ever experienced that in the redistricting process. Next is depression. And finally, acceptance. So you might look at that. Maybe she'll write a new book on, on redistricting grieving. That's Thomas Hoffler comparing redistricting to death. <laughs> Ari well, I mean, it is funny because, I mean, redistricting has led to political deaths. If you think about what they're doing in places like North Carolina, they're trying to maximize Republican advantage. And basically, Hoffler is saying his goal with the census is to draw districts. This is a little technical, Amy, but his goal with the census is to draw districts basically only counting citizens. So for now and for decades, the way districts have been drawn is you count everybody. Everyone is entitled to representation, whether they are a voter or not a citizen or not. What he's saying is we only want to draw districts counting citizens. What that means is that white Republicans will get a massive over advantage. They'll get a huge boost in representation. And minority areas where there are a lot of immigrants, they will receive less representation. So if the citizenship question is on the census, it will lead to a huge transfer of power to wider and more Republican areas. And Hoffler has stated that explicitly. And that's why the citizenship question was added to the census. The goal of the census is to count everybody who lives in the country. It is not to count only citizens. It is ev absolutely everybody who is here, because one of the things that the census does is it determines uh, funding mechanisms for government programs that, whether it's education or whether it's, you know, a social safety net or kind of all of these things that have to be accounted for, um, the government needs to have an accurate count of the people living in the state. Yeah, and let's be clear. I mean, you know, there are obviously citizens and there are obviously people who are not citizens. And of the people who are not citizens, there are people who are legally here as not citizens, whether it's on a visa or some other kind of permission. And then there's some here who are here who are not legally here. But the problem for many of them is that they're not confident that enforcement agencies will recognize the distinction between legally here and not legally here, and they'll suffer the consequences of the assumption that they're not legally here. That's exactly right, especially in this political environment. Um, I think for more than a year now, there's been this concern amongst, you know, democratic groups, but also, you know, civil rights groups that this question would uh, chill response that, you know, people would simply not want to fill out the census as a result because they uh, wouldn't trust that immigration enforcement wouldn't knock on their door if they um, admitted what their you know status was, and that that would lead to an undercount that would dramatically change the nature of, of federal funding and perhaps also change the nature of the allocation of congressional seats. Uh, there have been uh, studies done that, that show if you depress the uh, citizenship count, especially of Latinos in a handful of states, what that does is it could transfer congressional seats from California and New York to uh, a wider states such as Minnesota, Michigan, and Montana. Um, so that's a pretty big change right there. What Hoffler was up to, though, was a step even further. Hoffler was not simply thinking about funding or about allocation of congressional seats. Hoffler was thinking about how we redistrict uh, uh, state legislatures. When we redistrict congressional seats, the Constitution essentially mandates the use of total population. The districting of state legislatures, you're given much more leeway. Most states do use total population simply because it's the most 
um, you know, balanced and, and useful way of doing this. It's what the, it's also the information that the census provides. And it fits with our, our basic notion that representatives are supposed to represent everybody. Um, whether or not you vote, whether or not you are a voting age, and whether or not you are a citizen. Um, and what Hoffler begins studying in 2015 is what the effect would be of states using citizen voting age population to draw state legislative districts as opposed to total population. And he's doing this work on behalf of conservative donors who are thinking about bringing a lawsuit that would uh, mandate uh, the use of citizen voting age population to draw districts rather than total population. And he finds something very interesting. He takes a look at Texas and, and he says, well, um, if you were to use citizen voting age population here, you would make the state much more Republican. You would effectively dilute uh, the votes of Democrats and you would enhance the electoral possibilities, um, of whites and conservatives. And this is the game. The goal here is not simply to take control of chambers as it was in 2010 and draw new lines. It could be that the Supreme Court makes that more difficult. Um, it could not be. But what Republicans are thinking about is taking the next step beyond this, changing the way that we draw these lines at its most fundamental level, the, the population count that has to be inside of a district. And if they're able to do that, especially in these large conservative states that have big immigrant populations, the effect could be to hold back the voting power of a changing America for another decade, maybe longer. So these are all strategies that in a certain sense are resisting reflecting the representative mix of America. Um, so the strategies that were implemented in 2010 are about drawing districts in a way that achieved this effect. This really deep genius strategy of Hoffler's last dying moments um, is a strategy aiming at uh, changing the very formula of um, uh, of these districts. And and what is the argument against it? What is the rally that people have to have to say, um, this is not how it ought to be done? I mean, the question of whether it has to be done is separate from the question of whether it should be done. Like, we could imagine politically resisting it, right? I think that's right. Um, I mean, I think it goes down to what is the nature of representation? And how do we ensure that it's it's fair and that our elections matter? I mean, we have, I mean, since a series of, of landmark Supreme Court cases back in the 1960s, the goal of districting has really been ensuring that there's equal population and that it's equal total population because we think that representatives ought to represent you even if you're 15 years old, if you vote, if you don't vote. Um, the goal is representation. And if you shift that notion to you should have representation if you are a voting age citizen, you're changing something fundamental about American democracy in practice. Um, and you would be shifting a political power in a dramatic and enduring way. And I'm not sure we fully understand just how important that, you know, it sounds wonky and technical, right? A drawing districts based on on CVAP versus, you know, total population. Um, but it, what Hoffler and these other 
Republican strategists understand, and it's why they've spent so long studying it, is that it's got the power to uh, remake the entire country, um, uh, state by state and also nationally. It's a massive redistribution of political power away from cities and toward rural areas, away from uh, communities of color um, and towards and towards whiter, more conservative districts. And that's the purpose of it. It's not an accident. It's the entire purpose of the project. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you ever thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. So Blinkist, just in the same way that I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. Reading or listening to blanks of books isn't like reading an abridged book where you miss giant chunks of it. Rather, I like to think of it more as having a friend spend 15 minutes giving you an incredibly detailed overview of a book with plenty of specific points highlighted and key conclusions fully explained. And I came across another great way to use Blinkist recently, sort of by accident. The last blinked version of a book I listened to was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a book that I read back in high school. And it was great to be reminded of a bunch of details about the book that I had forgotten, and of course it gave me new insights that my 15-year-old self wasn't able to grasp at the time. So it's not just about reading stuff you might not otherwise get to. You can refresh yourself on books you've already read and get more out of them too. If you want to check out Blinkist for yourself, for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best and start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. Of course, you can cancel anytime. That's Blinkist.com slash best. wanted to have some way to come together and start fixing this and stop accepting that things are corrupt. That's Katie Fahey. She's a proud Michigander and the subject of a new documentary film called Slay the Dragon. I saw so many people who were just upset with the current way politics had been happening. I saw that there was a pent-up energy. I was like, I'm not alone. So I just thought I'd, yeah, try Katie got an initiative on Michigan's ballot to create an independent redistricting commission. And in 2018, Michigan voters overwhelmingly approved it. The Michigan state constitution opens with all political power is inherent in the people. We are those people. This is our power. Let's go have an independent citizens redistricting commission that restores faith in democracy. She posted something on Facebook. Does anyone want to take on gerrymandering in Michigan? And that's... Barrick Goodman. I'm the co-director of Slay the Dragon. Gerrymandering, the age-old process of drawing legislative districts in a partisan way, is interesting for political geeks like me, but not exactly the kind of thing that makes you say, hey, you know what? This would make for an awesome two-hour film. Class? Anyone? Anyone? But over the last few years, as lots of regular people have become frustrated with our seemingly intractable political polarization, the issue of gerrymandering has gotten lots more attention. 
If politicians are elected in districts that are drawn to protect them from losing an election, they're less accountable to voters and more accountable to partisans. But the 2016 election was also a galvanizing event, especially for many Democrats. They may not have paid much attention to politics or the process during the Obama era, but with Trump in the White House, they became much more engaged. And of course, thanks to the power of social media, many were able to reach into a universe once reserved for political insiders and players. You know, a lot of the story is about the Internet and the power of social media because this ignited a movement. I mean, she, within weeks, had hundreds and then thousands of volunteers of both political parties willing to do anything to get this on the ballot. You know, the prognosticators and the big money interests in Michigan poo-pooed the effort. This will never work. This has never worked before. If they happen to get it on the ballot impossibly, well, we'll just sue them into oblivion. They won't be able to proceed. And they tried all of that. And against all odds, this movement worked. And it is totally inspiring story. I, I, like a lot of people, was ready to give up on democracy. And then I encounter something like this where a person is using the sort of most basic tools of democracy, their shoe leather, their ability to talk to people, their determination to make a huge difference in one state's politics. Yeah, because at every turn, there were these bureaucratic roadblocks in the way. It's not just that you say, I need to get a ballot initiative on the ballot, right? Even if you pass that hurdle, then you have to get 350,000 signatures. Then you have to withstand a court challenge. Then you have to withstand the advertising onslaught. What you saw was time after time, this woman was able to use, as you pointed out, social media, but also it seems like she tapped into this deep-seated frustration with citizens of Michigan across the spectrum. And I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about that because they called this movement Voters Not Politicians, right? They did, yes. And yeah. and that was absolutely key. I mean, yeah. The branding of this as a grassroots citizen-led, which it absolutely was, although it was portrayed as a covert Democratic Party operation – I, you know, we were embedded with them. We knew how bipartisan this was. We knew this had no particular partisan ideology other than uh, to rid the state of gerrymandering. And, and they were clever and they were, they were absolutely determined to maintain that bipartisanship so they could, they were not vulnerable to attacks from the Republican Party. So they turned away offers of help from big Democratic donors until the very last minute when they absolutely needed them. They maintained their independence and they did things the right way. And you're absolutely right. They did tap into something that I think exists across the country, uh, which is a frustration with conventional politics and an absolute, you know, disgust at the way that both political parties uh, have entrenched themselves and sort of rid themselves of any real competition. And all the way through, they kept to that narrow message and, and it worked. I mean, I have to say, I, I was discouraged and really almost at times really upset by the sort of tactics used against this group. You saw really the worst of politics brought out, outright lies, manipulation of, you know, the, the sort of PR part of it, you know, attempts to, to depict them in certain ways. Even in the court case, there was all sorts of shenanigans going on against them, but they – they managed to overcome all that by staying true to their essential message, which was a winning message from the word go. Tell us a little bit about how this process would work, what Katie helped to get onto the ballot and now will be the law going into this next round of redistricting in 2021. 
Sure. In most states, it's the state legislature that redraws the district lines, not only for their own offices, but for the congressional offices. And of course, this puts in their hands enormous power to manipulate the, the boundaries so as to ensure a, an outcome. What Katie's and, and several other states have, have proposed and, and actually now are putting into effect is taking that power away from the state legislature and giving it to a commission of citizens of ordinary citizens, and in the case of Michigan, it's going to be four Democrats, four Republicans, and five independents. And they are, there are all sorts of rules about who they can be. They can't be politicians or related to politicians or have held office. It's really going to be a cross-section of Michiganders, and they are instructed, they are bound not to bring politics into the redistricting process, to leave it on the side. And, you know, this has worked. This has worked in California quite well. It's worked in several other states. You know, they're, they're, they did it very intentionally, very carefully. They took the best practices from other states and implemented them. I have high hopes for it working in Michigan as well. Did you think as you were filming this, this is never going to happen? Well, we were told all along that they wouldn't win, that there would be all sorts of ways of defeating them. But I honestly... I'm an optimist and, and an, a bit of an idealist, and, and you couldn't help but be caught up in what they, these folks were doing. You know, and, and, and again, it's, it was all sort of ages, demographics, races. It was just the best of sort of ideal grassroots political movement. And so, you know, my partner, Chris Durrance, who was my co-director, both of us felt like, put it this way, if they didn't win, we were going to be moving out of the country because this, this was sort of the last stand of democracy in our opinion. If this couldn't win... If people couldn't get behind this, this was such an obvious to us and I think to most people was sort of an obvious choice here. Well, then there was something even more deeply wrong with the system than we had assumed. And so it, it took on it took on the stakes of kind of like, in my mind, of sort of, you know, all or nothing. And fortunately, in the end, it really wasn't that close. Once they got on the ballot, beat back the legal challenges and actually put it to a vote to the voters of Michigan, they won a resounding victory. Roberts had cited uh, the state of Michigan, where, in fact, voters adopted a statewide citizen ballot initiative. I think it was last uh, I think it was in uh, November 2018 that will now require an independent redistricting commission for future redistricting in that state uh, following the 2020 census. That's good. Um, but he and he points to that and saying, look, that's how this should be done. The federal court should not be playing any role in it. But. Citizen ballot initiatives are not available uh, in all states across the country. And even in some states where they are, like Florida, that legislature just finished making it way more difficult to get any initiative on the ballot. So this leaves uh, courts, I guess, but state courts. Mark, do state courts, we know they have jurisdiction over uh, state legislative maps in many cases. Do state courts also have jurisdiction over federal uh, U.S. House districts? 
Yes, they do, and that is the one little shining beacon of hope here, um, because as we saw last year, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down the state's House District map and commissioned uh, an independent map maker to redraw it, which he did wonderfully. He created a ton of really competitive districts. Voters are very happy there. Uh, so yes, uh, every state Supreme Court does have the power to strike down maps uh, under their state constitutions. And every state constitution has some provision that can be read to prohibit partisan gerrymandering. Mm. Uh, every state constitution, for instance, guarantees the right to vote. Most guarantee free and equal elections. Uh, they guarantee freedom of association and equal protection. All of these bedrock constitutional freedoms that should prevent the legislature from discriminating against you because you support a certain political party and diluting your vote. Uh, so uh, we can rely on major Maybe a few more Supreme Courts to go out there and do what Pennsylvania's did, but most state Supreme Courts in this country are not very liberal. In fact, mm. the majority are conservative. So that avenue of relief is also pretty limited. And you're making the case for why this is such a nightmare scenario. Uh, the, the Supreme Court decided, the U.S. Supreme Court said long ago that racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional. Why? At least according to their argument, which, again, I should note a ton of lower court judges seem to uh, disagree with. Why is racial mandering uh, unconstitutional for partisan advantage, but partisan gerrymandering for partisan advantage is not unconstitutional? I mean, don't they both have the same deteriorating effect on the actual, you know, one person, one vote democracy that even Republicans pretend to believe in? Absolutely. And this is the weakest part of Robert's opinion, although it was a generally weak opinion. He said, oh, well, it's easy to measure racial gerrymandering. You just test to see if it's a district is drawn along racial lines. With partisan gerrymandering, it's impossible for courts to say how much partisanship is too much. And that is just factually wrong. Because, first of all, racial gerrymandering cases are very controversial and difficult uh, to deal with by the courts because it can be pretty challenging to mm -hmm figure out when, how, and why legislators used race. But setting that aside, we have so many rulings from both lower federal courts and state courts that have been able to pinpoint how much partisanship is too much and to create neutral criteria uh, that they can use to redraw maps and create much fairer, more competitive elections. This is not a mystery. This is not rocket science rocket science. And as Justice Kagan said in her dissent, what do these courts know that the Supreme Court doesn't? They aren't working with mm. any special knowledge. They're doing what Roberts claimed was impossible, which is to say this is obviously extreme partisan gerrymandering. This obviously goes way too far, and here's how we're going to fix it. Roberts pretends like this is really difficult. It's not difficult. Frankly, I think an eighth-grade algebra student could probably <laughs> draw fairer maps than many legislators are drawing today. You're right, because it was really court after court court in state after state who were able to come to this uh, decision that these should be struck down. They had no trouble doing it. Yet Roberts says, I we don't know. We can't figure out how could we possibly know if this is partisan or not. Now, uh, Mark Joseph Stern over in your uh, coverage at Slate, uh, you you quote uh, Roberts earlier this year, calling himself, quote, probably the most aggressive defender of the First Amendment on the court now. But you argue that the decision that he made, he wrote for the majority here, is one of the most effective and widespread attacks 
on free speech today. How do you see this as a as an attack on the First Amendment itself? And, and how does Roberts uh, justify what really is a pretty clear assault on uh, on free speech of American voters? Well, uh, yeah, I think it is pretty clear because there is no more sort of fundamental free speech right in this country under this Constitution than the ability to associate with a political party, to express your support for that political party, and to go to the polls and vote for a candidate of that party. That is, in fact, what the First Amendment was designed to protect. Like, that is at the absolute heart of freedom of expression in this country. And partisan gerrymandering is an attack on all of it, right? This is essentially the government retaliating against you for expressing your support for a political party, diluting the power of your vote simply because of your speech and association. That is a direct assault on the First Amendment. And Robert sees it and he shrugs his shoulders and says there's nothing we can do about it. Even worse than that, he suggests that this isn't even a real burden on speech because voters can still support the party they like. They might just not have any real power in the legislature. <laughs> that is an absurd vision of the First Amendment. And, and it really wow. just makes a mockery of our entire constitutional order. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight gerrymandering on the state level. Colorado, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, and Utah led the way on fighting gerrymandering in 2018 when voters passed reforms by overwhelming margins to make redistricting fair and transparent. This year, New Hampshire and Virginia passed reforms that are now in their final stages of becoming law. And active efforts are underway in at least four more states to do what the Supreme Court won't end the destructive practice of partisan gerrymandering. This is a rapidly growing movement, gaining momentum just in time to ensure that the 2021 redistricting makes our democracy fair. You can help make sure it succeeds. Each state has its own political levers to pull. Some require ballot initiatives. Some need a constitutional amendment to pass the legislature. And others require navigating legal channels to make change. Local chapters of the organization Common Cause are leading many of these efforts on the ground in states across the country. We've included the link to see all of their state campaigns in the show notes so you can join an effort that might already be underway where you live. 
If your state isn't on the list, check into how your state handles redistricting with the Brennan Center for Justice's 50 States Guide to Redistricting. If your state still has the incumbent state legislature drawing your districts, consider grabbing some friends and launching a campaign to change this. Common Cause has put together a redistricting activist handbook that includes tips and lessons learned from their many state campaigns and outlines varying alternatives to incumbent-controlled redistricting currently in effect in 15 states. These alternatives fall under four categories, independent commissions, politician commissions, nonpartisan state staff, and state constitutional standards. And finally, for an overview on gerrymandering and what you can do, visit indivisible.org's gerrymandering resource to get background information on gerrymandering, details on how lines are drawn, and clarification on terminology around this issue. In addition to fighting for redistricting reform, Indivisible also encourages pushing your state to fund census count efforts. This is important in every state because congressional Republicans are purposefully underfunding the census, which could lead to a massive undercount, especially of minority and other disenfranchised populations. Reallocating state budgets can help fill the census outreach funding gap. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fair and transparent elections are important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about fighting gerrymandering on the state level via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. I'm of the belief that it's not going to be one thing that gets us out of this mess. I think it's going to require an all-hands-on-deck strategy. I think in in some ways what we're seeing at at the state level with states being incubators of change, uh, passing more progressive legislation, passing more expansive legislation – is another model. I mean, the the problem with that, of course, is that if you are a Georgia or a Texas, you're not going to get election day registration or you're not going to get automatic registration. Um, but what we're seeing, I think, is that, you know, when I started covering this issue in 2011, it was all bad things that were happening. And there wasn't any sort of affirmative agenda that I saw anywhere for how to combat voter suppression. And now I think you're starting to see it, and I don't think you're seeing it in enough places, and I think it's still far falling too often on a, along partisan lines. But I do think you're seeing the fact uh, that states are now taking more expansive action um, to make it easier to register to vote, to make it easier to cast a ballot, to ensure more opportunity. And, and one of the things we saw in the 2018 election was that eight states passed ballot initiatives to either make it easier to vote or to crack down on gerrymandering. And, and these were very, very popular initiatives. I mean, they, they passed by 60-something percent of the vote in places like Missouri that were quite conservative. And what that tells me is that there's actually fairly broad support in this country 
for a pro-democracy agenda, that there are certain things that are going to remain popular. I think voter ID laws are always going to be popular because most people have those forms of ID. But other things like uh, automatic registration and election day registration or uh, independent redistricting, uh, those kind of things are restoring voting rights to ex-felons. Those kind of things are very, very popular. And in fact, when the Pew Research Center asked people, do you think the government should be doing everything it can to encourage people to vote? Uh, two-thirds of the public said yes. And so I think we, we have the beginnings of a pro-democracy movement in this country. The question is how to then get it so that it doesn't just break down along the usual partisan lines when it gets higher up in the process. And this is a great point. I mean, in 2018, saw more reform passed at the state level than at any moment in American history, even during the progressive era. And what's striking about those movements at the state level is that they were almost uniformly nonpartisan. Indeed, like in the Michigan redistricting movement, um, Katie Fahey, who's going to be one of the guests on this podcast, um, had an almost militant nonpartisan um, stance inside of that movement. You were not allowed to utter the word Democrat or Republican. Like they were just acting as citizens to create a democracy that all citizens could believe in. Um, and I think that that dynamic of like citizens believing we ought to create a democracy where we all can participate equally um, is universal at the grassroots level. And it's only when you get to the higher levels of like the United States Senate with the dark lord Mitch McConnell um, who views all of these questions in a purely instrumental way, like does this help the Republicans win or does this hurt the Democrats, that you begin to see this issue rendered in a deeply partisan way. Um, and I think the best part of that story is to think about what happened in Florida. You know, they have a ballot measure in Florida to enfranchise ex-felons. Um, and Florida, which, you know, is a pretty important swing state, but very strong Republican support, I think this passes in the 60 percent range um, to bring one potentially 1.5 million new voters uh, to the rolls in Florida. Obviously, that would have significant partisan effect. But Republicans voted for it because they thought it was right. It wasn't about, is it going to help my team? It's just, is it right? And now to see what the legislature, the politicians, the higher-ups have done is really extraordinary because now they've begun to say, well, you can vote only after you've paid all your fines or the taxes that were imposed against you because of your crime, which, of course, is a pretty effective poll tax for the people who've just been given the right to vote again. Yeah, I mean, it was a remarkable story. I mean, the amendment in Florida passed by 64 percent at a time when both the governor's race and the Senate race were basically 50-50 elections. And remember, it passed with 64% at a time when 1.5 million ex-felons couldn't vote for it. So the constituencies most affected by the policy weren't even able to vote for it, which makes it even more remarkable that it got a 64% uh, support. So, I mean, basically every time you had a ballot initiative before the voters that asked them, do you want democracy to work for more people, it passed, uh, no matter the partisan dynamics of the state, which I think is a really, really remarkable and, and, and didn't even get enough attention at the time. The problem is the fragility of these initiatives themselves, because in most states, there's nothing to stop the legislatures from coming back and undoing what the voters did. And I think legislators are, are especially in, in Republican-controlled states, but not exclusively, are more likely to do this, A, because they're mad they were bypassed in the first place. So they're mad that, that, that the voters are weighing in on stuff that they believe that should be under their purview. And that secondly, then they don't like the substance of it. 
And in Florida, the system's been working just fine for the people in power. They got elected under a system in which over a million people were disenfranchised. So they don't want to take the risk of allowing um, more people to vote. And they don't think there's going to be enough of a backlash uh, if they try to undo rights for people because it means that the constituencies most affected by it aren't going to be able to vote in the first place. So they won't be able to vote them out of office. And so I'm hoping in Florida that there will be a bipartisan backlash to this. I mean, one of the things we saw in Florida, one of the reasons this passed was that you had groups like the Koch brothers and the Christian coalition joining forces with the ACLU. So you had coalitions that would never exist if you had a D or an R by their names. But when you made it issue-based, you could actually uh, you could actually gain some sort of consensus. And that consensus won't exist on a lot of things. I mean, the ACLU and the Koch brothers don't agree on most things, but they they agreed to agree on this. And I would hope those same forces would would work on trying to push back on against what the legislature's uh, doing here because I mean just in a practical effect in Florida the the governor's race was decided by 30,000 votes and the Senate race was decided by 10,000 votes in 2018 and by all indications 2020 is going to be just as close and then you have a situation where 1.4 million people were in line to get their voting rights back and if that's a sub- substantially smaller number, potentially massively smaller number, I mean, they're saying 700,000 people or more could be disenfranchised just by requiring you to pay um, f- fines, fees, or previous restitution because so many people owe these fines as a result of how our criminal justice system works. That's going to significantly change um, both the politics of Florida, but also just undermine exactly what people thought they were voting for. We've just heard clips today from Amicus laying out the details of the Supreme Court ruling on gerrymandering. Democracy Now! told the story of the smoking gun documents that prove the Republicans' purpose all along was to suppress Democratic voters by adding a citizenship question to the census. Lawrence Lessig, on Another Way, spoke with David Daly about the next war Republicans are already looking forward to, attempting to redistrict based on citizens rather than residents. The Takeaway told the story of the Michigan Ballot Initiative for Nonpartisan Redistricting. The Bradcast spoke with Mark Joseph Stern about the nonsense of the SCOTUS ruling on gerrymandering. Our activism for today is in support of the state-level pro-democracy movements fighting against the tide of gerrymandering. And finally, again on Another Way, Lawrence Lessig spoke with Ari Berman about the fact that our broken democracy seems to be getting close to hitting the mainstream, as well as many of the movements currently underway to unrig our system. Members this week will hear some additional material on the relationship between partisanship and race, plus our continuing discussion about political humor as a coping mechanism. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's uh, James out of Sacramento. How you doing? Uh, love the show. I think you're great and everything you do. This is off uh, topic from what you've been playing lately. Um, this goes to our uh, intersectionality and identity politics that you've, that you've talked about plenty of times. The Democrats have got to have this message. The reason Hillary lost was because 
the white middle class, uh, working class, rejected um, the politics of inclusion. They didn't want to uh, include blacks and Hispanics into the fold. Those working class people as well in regards of uh, getting better benefits um, and so forth. What we have to tell them over and over and over again is that it's the rich, the elites, that are playing them against each other. Divide and conquer. The only reason uh, they're rejecting these other people, you know, they've been brainwashed into being racist, basically, is because the rich uh, keep telling them, you know, that these other people over here are going to get the same benefits they are, and they're not as good as you. They don't deserve to get those benefits. They don't deserve to get um, good pay and so forth. So um, go with us, and they won't get it. And in, do- in so doing, they uh, are shooting themselves in the foot, basically. So racism basically is a tool, a wedge issue that the rich use to go ahead and um, make the working class give up more and more um, benefits for themselves, more and more money for themselves because of this. The Democrats have got to hammer this message over and over and over again. Tell them, look, if you stick with us, we're going to go ahead and we're going to make sure you get good pay. We're going to make sure that you get good benefits. We're going to make sure that you get vacation. We're going to make sure you get pay for a sick days. We've got to go ahead and include blacks and Hispanics in the fold as well, because together we're, we're much stronger. We're stronger with all working class people coming together. And the rich are um, making you racist, basically, in order to go ahead and deprive you of what you need. So they've got to hammer this message and repeat it over and over and over again. The Republicans are masters of brainwashing by repetition. We've got to do the same thing. All right. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Will. I'm in New Jersey. Just uh, listened to the repost of um, the uh, podcast about the uh, legacy of the Confederacy, and I wanted to comment specifically about your final comments, Chapter 17. What struck me most about the moral narrative, I guess you could say, of the white Southern non-slaveholding poor farmers or, or just the, the Southern whites who were non-slaveholding, I think the argument that the uh, man from the Sons of the Confederacy made concerning that point about the fact that their, his family wasn't a slaveholding family, it's actually not a bad argument for this reason. It sort of puts the northern motivations for war and the northern complicity in white supremacy on the defensive, I think. And what I mean by is this. Yes, I agree with the podcast, uh, you know, the comments about white supremacy and, and, and slavery being the motivation for secession. But it is also well documented that in the North, segregation was also quite common. Uh, racial attitudes toward blacks were also quite repulsive, even if the northern states were non-slaveholding states. So I think it's quite a clever defense of putting 
northern morality on the back foot now and forcing northerners to come up with a a, a, a narrative that it, that would sort of morally excuse uh, their own racial attitudes, their own segregation in the context of the Civil War, the antebellum period, and, and afterward, uh, segregation uh, was also something practiced, maybe not as extensively, but red line zoning and uh, and racial preferences and, and whatnot, we see that in in reflected in period culture. The most um, illustrative, I think, is uh, Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. So I think it's quite a clever, maybe not purposely thought out as, as such, but still a clever argument to make to force the northern narrative on the back foot. And I am wondering what you would think of that. Again, I just found the podcast recently and, and enjoyed it and uh, will continue to listen. Thank you very much. Hope to listen to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So in response to Will, first of all, welcome to the show. Please tell about a thousand of your friends about it. Uh, I think we're having a nutrition problem. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm blaming uh, politics fatigue and, and uh, overwhelm. But as your comments, I do, to be honest, I don't entirely follow the process laid out of, of how sort of arguing that, well, my family didn't have slaves, therefore something, something, and that puts the North argument or the northern perspective on the back foot i'm I, i'm not following exactly i'm probably missing something it's totally fine because i'm going to agree with you anyways because i am always in favor of putting people on the back foot when it comes to them thinking that they're not racist so like the the best example of this is tim wise he's a white guy but he's an anti-racist activist that he's an author and podcaster and all of those things that's his job is to be anti-racist and on his website he has like an faq section and one of the questions is hey so i heard that you said you were a white supremacist is that true and the answer is yes he did say that he was a white supremacist and here's the reason in an interview he was asked you know something along the lines of are you a white supremacist? And his response was, well, I think, you know, basically I'm paraphrasing majorly here, you know, in essence, because I've been raised in a white supremacist culture and have internalized throughout my entire life, huge chunks of that culture, it would be disingenuous for me to say that I am not a white supremacist because white supremacy is a system that infiltrates everyone. So essentially everyone who's raised in a white supremacist system becomes white supremacist. Obviously he does not mean in the way that people would put on hoods and burn crosses. 
That's not what he means. But to, to, to say that and, and uh, use that as a really powerful way to reframe the, the context or the, the meaning of a white supremacist and changing it into just someone who has racist views because they've been infused by a white supremacist culture. Um, it, it was a powerful way of, of reframing that. And anyone who would have heard it would have certainly been put on the back foot about it and made them question everything they thought about, well, I, I thought that I don't actively use the N word and that's all it takes to not be racist. And so Tim Wise is saying something completely different. So for sure, the North was also super, super racist, but that is not a defense for slavery. Like it, those things don't need to go together at all. And, and just on the note of, uh, Northern, um, racism or, or even, um, I mean, it doesn't matter where the the person came from, but like one of the most shocking things, just like a little, just a little uh, nugget of information that I uh, came across sort of recently within the last couple of years is that some abolitionists who we think of as being the people like they, they didn't, they weren't just ambivalent. They, they didn't, uh, you know, they had an opinion. They did not want slavery to exist in the U.S. So you think like, wow, they, they must have been like the most progressive because you could either be pro-slavery or you could not really care or you'd be an abolitionist. Therefore, that's like the most progressive idea. But what I heard is that some abolitionists were abolitionists because they were so racist that they didn't want black people anywhere in their country, even if they were enslaved. They're like, no, no, no. Enslavement is not good enough. They need to go. That's how much I hate them. <laughs> so, and, and so certainly some Northern abolitionist would have held that opinion. So anyway, I'm totally on board with uh, calling out the North for their racism. Uh, and, and as I was saying, it, it, it just makes no difference to the South. That is not a like, well, they were bad too. Like that's the lowest form of argument. And I know that's not what Will is saying, but I, I'm I'm just making sure we all agree that the South is not getting away with anything by making this argument. Like, uh, you know, it's worse for women in other countries. That is not a good argument. <laughs> it, it's worse for gay and trans people in other countries. These are not clever points by any stretch. If you want to talk about the North being racist or Russia being dangerously anti-gay, or Muslim theocracies being dangerously anti-women, I am always happy to cast some blame where the blame is due. It just doesn't do anything to mitigate the white supremacy, the patriarchy, the homophobia, the transphobia that we are dealing with right here. One does not affect the other. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. As always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. Just a quick reminder before I go that Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts in 14 languages, and they're only 10 to 15 minutes, so they're easy to fit in. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Now, thanks to everyone for listening. 
Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.